someone told me there were about 30,000 neuroscientists in the world, David, but I don't think there's more than maybe a handful who are as have as many interests and as much talent as you do. So I'm going to tell um, our viewers a little bit about you first, but in the rest of it, you'll be able to fill in some of the blanks for folks. But uh, where I first heard about you was the first a book that you wrote called Incognito, which has been out several years now, which is The Secret Lives of the Brain. And that was the beginning. You have, in addition to all those other things that you're doing, you do a lot of writing. So one of the things I've noticed is you've written several books on what I think of as knowledge-related books. And I'm very interested in this whole question of what's the intersection of, or what does neuroscience have to tell us? about, uh, you know, how we share knowledge, how we retain knowledge, and that sort of thing. So we'll get to that. We'll talk about your new PBS series, which is The Brain with Dr. David Eagleman. That's very fun, and you can tell us what some of those episodes are about. Um, but why don't we just go ahead and get started. One of the things that I noticed in the book was that um, you have talked about there are things that we don't know about ourselves, and that's partly what incognito is about. Say, what do you think is that secret that we don't know about our brains, and why is it important that we should know that? The main thing is that we don't have access to most of what's going on in the brain. So it's a system that is completely beyond our own comprehension. You're made up of 100 billion neurons and thousands of trillions of connections between them, and that's something that's too big for you to actually understand, and yet it is you. The way we know that is because if you get damage to your brain, that changes you. It changes your personality, your decision-making, your risk-taking, and so on. So you are your brain, and yet we, we just don't um, have the ability to understand a system of that size. So most of your life happens under the radar of your conscious awareness. In other words, you don't have access to most of um, your decision-making and how you think and why you believe what you do and so on. That's what the book Incognito is about because the longer I was in neuroscience, the more fascinating I found that um, essentially we don't, we don't really know ourselves and the best we can do is study from, from the outside and study other brains and each other and, and try to figure out why we operate the way we do in the world. Yeah. So tell me about, you know, you uh, run the laboratory on perception, I think, mm -hmm. and that's not the exact name. What's the exact Laboratory for Perception and Action. The, oh, Laboratory for Perception and Action. That's good. So what are the kinds of things that you guys find interesting there? Well, I've always been interested in this question of how brains construct reality, and, um, you know, the brain is locked in silence and darkness inside the skull, and yet... It, oh, that's it, a dire image. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And yet, it literally lights up the world. You, you think there are colors and lights and people and things like that, um, but in fact, um, uh, it's all a construction of the brain, and different brains construct reality differently. So this is one of the main areas that we study. I, I also study neuroscience and our legal system, where those intersect and how we can build a forward-looking system of, of justice where, um, where we try to figure out what do we do from here mm -hmm. because we treat incarceration as a one-size-fits-all solution currently mm -hmm. and America has the number one incarceration rate in the whole world out mm -hmm. of any country. So I'm looking for better solutions there and I hope to really change that. So those are some of the things that I, that I study, but I also study, in relation to this uh, issue about how we learn and share knowledge, I study decision-making and how, how we pick up knowledge and how we use that knowledge and process it to, to make decisions. Mm -hmm. 
and, and in some cases how, you know, how we communicate that knowledge. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that people who are especially are interested in the area of knowledge management care about is not just that knowledge gets preserved, but that it actually informs people's decisions. The sort of like the pinnacle of that is the ability to make better decisions based on what you know. So given, how could we make better decisions? There are two ways that the brain learns. Um, <clears throat> the main way is it picks up on information unconsciously, where you don't even you don't even know exactly how you're doing it. Once you've picked things up and have expertise on them, usually that knowledge is ineffable. In other words, you can't even you can't pass it on to someone else how you do it. So we call that tacit knowledge yeah. in the knowledge management game. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's yeah. right. Uh, in the neuroscience game, we call it implicit knowledge. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and. Um, yeah, one of the examples I use in Incognito is about something called chicken sexing. So um, on, chick on poultry farms, when, when the little chicks are born, they're divided up into the male and the female chicks because they're, they have different uses. And so chicken sexers are people that pick up the, the chicks and they look at it and they put them in the male or female pile. But it's a famously difficult problem because chicks at two days old look identical. It's, it's really hard to tell. <laughs> so it turns out that Americans tried to figure out how to do this chicken sexing problem for a long time and they couldn't really figure out a good way to teach it. So they went to Japan where there was a very famous school on this and the way it works there is you pick up a chick, you make your best decision about whether to put it in the male or the female pile and the master stands over mm -hmm. your shoulder and says yes mm -hmm. or no. Mm -hmm. And that's all the feedback you get. Each time you make a decision, you get positive or negative feedback. And what happens is after a while, people get quite good at, at mm -hmm. discriminating uh, male and female, mm -hmm. but they don't know how they do it. And, and even the master doesn't know how he does it. It's just it's a, it's a knowledge that's passed along through the generations this way. And by the way, the same thing happened with um, plane spotting during World War II in England. The, the British government realized that some people were really good at standing on roofs and figuring out if it was a German aircraft or, or mm -hmm. a British aircraft on its way. And they tried to get these people to train other people. But they found that these guys just couldn't say how they did it. They just did it, and they were yeah. good at it. So they picked up this same sort of method of just having them say yes or no. So they stand there with the, the next expert and say... Uh, you know, is that a British or German aircraft? And the person makes their best guess, and the person says yes or no. Tells them whether they're right yeah. or wrong. Yeah. So that's one way that brains learn is by this unconscious picking up of information, where, for better or worse, it's ineffable. Right. And that's where a lot of expertise comes from. Yeah. 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 Okay. Go on. Exactly. We'll come back to that. Okay. Cool. Yeah. The other way that brains learn um, has to do with a more consciously mediated style where your consciousness is really involved in it. And, and, and this is this whole area of <clears throat> creative thinking and change. And I know that organizations often have to deal with change management. And change is really hard for people and organizations because of this thing, because most of our lives runs on autopilot with this unconscious brain. So when it comes to change management, there's a lot of, uh, you know, sort of conscious mediation that we have to do to... <clears throat> To, to really take on some new framework and, and, uh, and, and 
you know, make that part of our lives, and eventually that then becomes the unconscious thing. Right. Well, getting off of autopilot is exhausting. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want to have to do it any more than you absolutely <laughs> have to. I mean, there has to be a good reason to it, which yeah. is why there needs to be a really good, provoking reason to want to change in an organization. Yeah, and I right. think you're right. I had never thought about that connection, is that it takes us off of autopilot. Yeah. That the routines we've learned, that we no longer spend any neural energy trying to sustain, driving to work, drinking coffee, whatever, None of that, uh, all of that falls away and we have to work at everything. So the good news is we can train ourselves, at least as individuals, maybe organizations can do this also, we can train ourselves to be in the habit of always knocking ourselves off the path of least resistance. So as an example, I, whenever possible, try to drive a different route home from work every day because otherwise... Um, otherwise, you're on autopilot and your life uh, shrinks in the sense that you yeah. feel like, oh, I left work and now I'm at home. Yeah. But if you drive a different room, there's some novelty, you're doing different things. I always do things like as soon as I get really good at using my mouse with one hand, I'll switch to the other hand. Um, I sometimes try brushing my teeth with my other hand. I've heard like about that. that technique. Yeah. God, this, it happened to me the other day. I was climbing stairs to try to get as much aerobics in as short a period of time as I could. And I was on my phone the whole time, right? Who, who isn't? And I look up, and instead of being on 16, I was on 28. Wow. Yeah, and I missed the entire thing. I was not there for 1 through 28. I don't have any, mem <laughs> I don't have any memory of it. But let's go back to this. So this is fascinating, trying to get ourselves off of autopilot so that we don't... Um, why do you think that is? So we get used to the discomfort, or are we building neurons? Why do we do that? We're building new connections between neurons. We're building roadways, essentially. So, mm -hmm. so what happens is the brain is really good at automatizing. So it figures out, okay, here's the task that I'm doing over and over. It builds connections, right. and that is the path of least resistance, and you're going to keep doing that all the yeah. time. What fires together, wires together. Exactly. That's yeah. exactly right. And so what happens is... Um, if you get in the habit of, of injecting novelty and always shaking things up, you're building new roadways, you have new paths, and, um, and one of the great advantages of this was just recently discovered with this ongoing study with these nuns up in New York where <clears throat> they were taking, there, there was a whole convent of nuns, um, all of whom agreed to donate their brains. And the results were very surprising because it was discovered that about a third of these nuns had Alzheimer's when they died. In other words, their, their tissue was degenerating with Alzheimer's disease, and yet they didn't show symptoms. Nobody, nobody noticed that there was anything wrong with them. I'd heard of that. Yeah, and it turns out, so this is something called cognitive reserve. It turns out that even though their brain tissue was degenerating, they were constantly building new roadways, so nobody noticed. They didn't have any cognitive deficits. Yeah. And the reason is, because they were, they were cognitively quite active. They were socializing, they were mm -hmm. they had responsibilities, they were interacting with people, they were mm -hmm. you know, playing games on their smartphones, they were doing all kinds of things, and hence they were building these new roadways all the time. Yeah. And so when you have that, you, um, you have other ways of solving problems, you have ways of getting from A to B with multiple routes. So this is why it's important to shake ourselves up and build all these new roadways all the time. Otherwise, we're stuck with just one way to get yeah. from A to B. Let's go back then, because this is, somehow we'll tie all this together, and this is, but I want to walk off the path for the minute and come back to the one. I mentioned to you earlier that how interested I am in this whole question of how we can accelerate the rate at which people become expert 
because part of its demographic shift, there's a lot of people in the baby boomer generation who are retiring and taking with them all of that implicit or tacit knowledge that yeah. was built up over years, and we don't have that number of years to replace them with, right? So the concept of nexperts, can we accelerate the rate at which novices or nexperts acquire enough tacit or implicit knowledge that they won't cause train wrecks, explosions, or other bad things to happen at work, right? Yeah. And so that was, I'm really interested in that, and there's some new work coming out about that, but what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, it's interesting. We're in the middle of a generational shift here in terms of learning styles. So um, <clears throat> the way that things have traditionally been taught has to do with just-in-case knowledge. So, um, you know, our teachers downloaded everything to us just in case we ever need to know. Mm -hmm. But the, the new generation is all about just-in-time knowledge. So uh, as soon as they need to know how to you know, build an electronic circuit or fix a flat tire on their bicycle or whatever, you know, they just mm -hmm. look it up. And <clears throat> there are, maybe there's some disadvantages to that, but there are also some great advantages from a neural point of view. And that is knowledge sticks best when, when, when what you're learning is in context with your curiosity. Yeah. And that has to do with the neurotransmitters that are present. So in other words, when you're curious about something and then you get the answer, that really sticks. In contrast, if I give you a list of dates in Mongolian history that you just don't care about, it's mm -hmm. really hard to get the right neurotransmitters there for it to ever stick, for you mm -hmm. to retain it later. Um, so I think, the, um, you know, I think the interesting challenge with bridging this gap of the retiring generation and young people coming in is figuring out how to how to make it so that they can just have this just-in-time knowledge instead of a core dump of everything they might need to know all at once. Um, and also, the general story about this next generation, or maybe about any brains, is that things need to be made relevant and engaging in order mm -hmm. for it to stick. And so mm -hmm. everyone's got a different uh, idiosyncratic challenge with that, but that's the idea, is how do you make it so that the next expert cares and sees the relevance of that yes. information. Yes. And that's why people have always learned better at work when they were in a real project. When they're yeah. actually doing something, it's more engaging, there's more demands. There's this great new book, I know you must have seen it, called How We Learn by Benedict Carey. I don't know this. Oh, you're going to love this. So uh, let me give you the, one of the pieces of research that he uh, chronicles in there is that it's counterintuitive. Most of us take tests after we've supposedly learned the you know, dates in Mongolian history. It turns out, just as you said, we retain information better if we're quizzed before we learn it because it creates mm -hmm. a state of arousal, at least in those of us who are achievement motivated, to know the answer. Yes. So it sticks better. You know, this is an ancient technique, by the way, that, that rabbis use in teaching the, yeah. the, these rabbinic text, texts. That everything is question-based. Well, why is this? How's that? Who, you know, yeah. Why did so-and-so do such and such? Everything is phrased as a question, and the learner is the one who has to... So this is called guided, guided learning or guided right. teaching. Uh, and it's an extremely effective technique. Yeah, well, that, that is evidently borne out by some of those other 30,000 neuroscientists who are out there <laughs> doing research on this topic. Let's go back a little bit to the, uh, the point you brought about making it engaging. I do think that it's not just this generation. It's those of us who like our devices, our digital devices. 
if I can look it up, I don't want to spend my valuable time with you talk, you know, reading text to each other. That'd be crazy. Yeah. It'd be like me picking this up and saying, let me read you a few passages, or would you like to read me a few passages? I mean, as charming as that might be, it's not necessarily the best use of our face-to-face -face time. Yeah. And I think that's really true. If they can read it in advance or look it up when they need it, let's use this interactive time a chance yeah. to learn, uh, create and learn something new. Yeah, yeah, I agree. You know, I think one thing that um, experts need to keep in mind when they're passing things on to the next generation is just this issue that what, what the next generation needs is the right kind of information and not the, not the shtick of the expert. I, I have a lot of people in my lab that I'm yeah. always teaching things to, and I try to keep this in mind always, that what they need is the information and not all the stuff the context that you have? Yeah, the context that I have, the stories about why I'm so great in this situation, I said the right thing in the perfect time. They don't need that stuff. Okay, this is the general statement. How do you know that when their eyes glaze over when you're telling them that? Is that how you know they don't need that? You know, I mean, the funny, you know, they'll always laugh and be charming and polite and so yeah. on, but it's not, anyway, yeah, this is just something that experts need to keep in mind. Is yeah. It's not about us, it's about the, the next generation picking up what's important. But yeah. One of the things that people say, you know, there's a, there's a dark side to everything and I think you probably will be able to give us the theory behind it is that one of the things that uh, when experts are about to retire sometimes I kind of hear that's not such a bad thing you know <laughs> that somebody's going to walk out because they got a way of doing stuff and they're not interested in any other way of doing it yeah. it sounds to me like that's part of that routine uh, they've established a certain belief system about this is what works and I'm not open to anything else that's right, and the difficulty is that the world is changing so fast that it's mm -hmm. really unlikely that anybody's automatized way of doing things is going to last very long. Yeah. Um, the tools, the techniques, the methods, the theories, all of these things are changing out from under us quickly. And so the people who are the best at what they do across fields are those people, um, one of my mentors when I was in postdoc was Francis Crick, who's the co-discoverer of how DNA. how lucky are you? It was, it was terrific. It was such an opportunity. Oh, my God. But even at the age of 86, which is when he died, he loved new ideas. He was thrilled with, uh, with yeah. any idea that, that broke his frameworks, that, that shook him off the path of least resistance. Those are the people that, are the, 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 that last in any yeah. field because yeah. they're, they're seeking actively not the data that confirms their biases, but that, that, that disrupts it. Yeah, I have this belief that the, of all the hundreds of biases that the human species is prey to, the worst one is the confirmation bias. Yeah. It's the basis for racism and yeah. so, you know, polarization and bad stuff all through the ages, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, yeah looking exactly for things right. that confirm your own belief about that. You know, you, interesting you brought Crick up. I, I, I'd like to see if it seems to me that neuroscience is about where the quest for the human genome was about 20 years ago. You know, we got some new tools, you know, they could map the genome back then, you got an fMRI, everybody's excited about turning it on your brain and seeing what happens when you watch commercials, whatever it is that you're interested in. How do you see that playing out for us in terms of real application? You know, it, there's the hype curve and then there's the the trough of disillusionment, which mm. certainly happened with uh, gene therapies, and then it's coming back to more realistic. Where do you see us with neuroscience in that whole continuum? Uh, I mean, we're sort of in caveman times currently. We've got mm -hmm. we've got some fancy tools, but they're um, 
they're just too crude to know uh, to know mm-hmm. really what's going on inside a system this complex. And you know, and the difficulty is we don't. I mean, there there are some questions in our field that most people don't even talk about. But these are the 800-pound gorillas in in the room that we don't even have a clue how to address. So, for example, how do you put together billions of pieces and parts, neurons, and have you come out of it. A as consciousness in your, of any kind. Yeah, your private subjective experience yeah. of being you. Um, we don't, we not only don't have a theory of how that works, we don't even know what such a theory would look like because none of our current ways of writing things down, like the equation equals yeah. the taste of feta cheese to you. Yeah. Like how do you even put that into There's the no kind of mathematical tool? Yeah. Exactly. So this is a giant unsolved problem. We know somehow that, that the operation of these pieces and parts is equivalent to your private subjective experience because when that changes, your experience changes. And when you go into deep sleep, your private subjective experience disappears. And so, I mean, we know they're related, yeah. but goodness, we don't have any idea. We, we don't even know how to start on that path, really. So yeah. people like Francis Crick were real pioneers here in establishing the seriousness of that problem because... Before a guy with his gravitas came along and said, look, consciousness is a serious scientific problem, everybody thought, oh, we can't even talk about that. Probably as embarrassment. Yeah, 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 exactly. Or they thought it was a woolly question. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah, and it is also having a moment. I remember um, we were talking about meditation uh, earlier before we started. And I remember it was about 10 years ago now, and I was at a, a big, fancy business dinner in New York, and we were sitting around a table, and a bunch of consultants paid a lot of money, you know. And they were talking about what consultants often talk about, which is, what's the next big thing, you yeah. know. And I said, oh, I think it's meditation. Well, you should have seen people <laughs> back up from the table here. We didn't know we had a hippie here. You know? <laughs> and then, of course, now the Wall Street Journal doesn't pass, let a week pass without running an article yeah. on, on meditation. Yeah, quite right. So things have, a, you know, have their moments. Let's talk about this new PBS series, uh, The Brain with Dr. David Eagleman. And in honor of that, if you will open your handy-dandy little APQC bottle, <laughs> you will find a Thank non-anatomically you. correct stress ball brain, David, which... Thank you. I use it during meditation. Yeah, yeah, we can play with this. Tell me about the PBS series. Why are you doing it? What's it what are you going to be trying to do with for us as, as viewers? Yeah, so uh, will you remember Carl Sagan's Cosmos series? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so there's never been something like that for the brain. Um, and... Uh, the brain is something lots of people are interested in. I mean, the, the, the pulse of public interest on this is, is enormous. I, I've, I've been really impressed at, at how many people care about understanding who they are and what's running under the hood. So um, this is something I've been working on for years is, is putting together a series that's like Cosmos, but for the inner Cosmos. So uh, I'm working with a terrific production company. We got the funding from the Center for Public Broadcasting, and um, we've been filming this for nine months now. It's it's an enormous undertaking. Uh, It's a six-hour series, and I've divided um, each episode into a different big question. So questions like, who am I? How do I decide? Who's in control? What is reality? Things like this. Um, And... Um, it'll be out in fall of 2015, and it's just, it's the most exciting project I've ever worked on. It's also the hardest project I've ever worked on. But, oh, my gosh, But I yeah. think it will, 
you know, it'll it'll make a change from me reaching, you know, 100 people in a classroom or a million people with my books to 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 a much larger audience. Yes. And it's as much as I love writing books, and I will continue writing books my whole life. Um, there are a lot of pulls on people's entertainment time, and for someone to sit down and read a book cover to cover, it, that's the shrinking demographic who's willing to do that. Mm -hmm. So this is a way of reaching people, and it's a very powerful method. Engaging. It's engaging. Yeah. You can tell a story in a way that someone will remember forever because of the visuals, because of the way it's set up. Yeah. And I'm, you know, in a sense, I'm, I'm still learning every day how powerful the visual medium is. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. So I'm really, I'm just really enjoying this process, and I think it'll, uh, you know, the way it's shaping up right now, I'm very happy with. Did you say that one of the episodes is going to be on something I never heard of before called social neuroscience? Yeah. And how brain, say some more so, about that. Well, so that episode I'm titling, Do I Need You? And it's about, oh. it's about <clears throat> the, the fact that brains, a lot of the brain circuitry is about other brains. It's about interacting. And, uh, you know, in small groups and in villages and in communities and, and, and companies. And companies. I actually just published a paper uh, last week called Are Corporations People Too? And I was examining this issue of, you know, there's this whole legal debate, this ongoing, sure. very heated debate about yes. whether corporations should have rights like individuals do. Yes. So <clears throat> I put people in brain imaging and I had them read vignettes about the actions of people or about the actions of companies. And as a control, uh, um, vignettes about objects like a cup of coffee or a printer or a table. And, um, and the question is, when you are thinking about corporations, do you think about them like objects or like people? Because there are arguments in the legal system both ways. And it turns out, when you're thinking about corporations and their actions, <clears throat> the circuitry that's being used is indistinguishable from the way that you think about people. So things like trust, reputation, integrity. Oh my gosh. We're using the same circuitry. This is big. I think it's big because it turns out that corporations are quite new on the evolutionary scene and we have not evolved circuitry that allows us to think about corporations in some new ways. So we just use the same circuitry that we use for people. So we say, well, I don't really trust that company or, yeah. you know, oh, they're, that's a good company and when they, do, when they donate to charity and so on, yeah. we don't think about it as, oh, well, that's 100,000 people just trying to make it all work and they've got an HR department and blah, blah, blah. Instead, we think about it like, oh... That's a good guy. Yeah, the brand thing is really about how you feel about that about the company. Exactly, that is fascinating. And this, I think, is by the way the biggest lesson to companies. Uh, I, I talk with companies a lot on this issue. Is that when it comes to branding, it's not just about price point and if the experience is good and so on. It's about the, the social context. It's about does the consumer on the street think that you are cool or lame? And by cool, I mean things like, you know, socially responsible and green trustworthy and, and, and yeah, yeah and green and things like that. Um, you know, it's interesting. After, uh, years ago, if you asked young people uh, which, which uh, of these petroleum companies would you like to work for and show them different brands, they would say, oh, BP. Well, why? Well, they're a green company. I, I, they're not. They're just a petroleum company, right? But, but yeah, they've got this green leafy logo oh and stuff. And then after the the spill in the Gulf, it's just the opposite. Now nobody wants to work for BP. It's, yeah. You know, it's it's a matter of reputation. The stuff matters entirely. And the way people make that judgment about whether they'd want to work for that company or not 
just everything to do with the, the social context, whether you think they're, yeah. they're good guys or bad guys. So I think when you're going to be keynoting at our knowledge management conference uh, next, I think you're going to be speaking on April 30th, on Thursday, on April 30th. And when you're talking, I think people in the audience who are all change agents, whether they're trying to make people use better processes or share knowledge more effectively, they're going to care about this whole question about branding. Because I think it's true for an internal change initiative, too, that if you ignore the kind of feeling that you're emitting when you talk about this change, you're ignoring what's going to motivate or demotivate people to engage with. I think it'd be well worth talking to people about that, David. What are some other messages you might like to share with the group when we talk about knowledge and how we maintain it? You wrote a great book, uh, Why the Net Matters. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of lessons in that for knowledge management professionals. That's right. You know, a big theme running throughout the book is how the advent of the Internet changes all the equations for why civilizations collapse. So looking at previous, looking at the last 10,000 years, you see lots of civilizations that were huge. I mean, they were the biggest players on the planet, and then they just just fell apart, and there's nothing left of them. Um, And so the question is why, and a lot of it has to come down to knowledge management. I mean, it just, it, it all boils down to that. It has to do with being able to share knowledge. So an example is the Library of Alexandria, which was burned to the ground. This was the place where all the manuscripts from around the world were collected and, and mm-hmm. scribes would copy them and and then one fire is enough to wipe all that out and, and we're in this very lucky moment in history now where that can't happen Yeah. because even a solar flare couldn't knock all the digital dots out everywhere well exactly yeah. right and it's backed up everywhere so for example um, there's something called the, the internet archive which um, which archives every single page on the internet at different times, and they have a couple of different backups that are very you know heavily fortified and protected. One's in California, mm-hmm. the other one, as a symbolic gesture, is in Alexandria in Egypt. That's Aww. where they store it. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, and 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 this applies not only to to web knowledge and written things, but even things like our greatest works of art. So there's something called the Digital Michelangelo Project where they do 3D scanning to get at millimeter resolution, you know, like David's, uh, 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 Michelangelo statue of David. Yeah. And then, you know, let's say the the museum in Italy gets destroyed in an earthquake, that can be reconstructed, perfectly reconstructed. So, so, and that's the trend of everything now. Things are backed up, things are kept, um, and so things don't get lost. The reason this matters, of course, knowledge management is because the um, when you look at the history of medicine, things traditionally were reinvented so many yeah. times because somewhere on the planet something was discovered and that fire burned for a while and then it petered out yeah. and it had to get rediscovered somewhere else. And so many millions of people have died because the knowledge existed that could have saved mm-hmm. them, but it just didn't disseminate. Mm-hmm. So now that's totally different. Now you know uh, PubMed in, in my field, PubMed.com is the place where all of the Every biomedical discovery, every paper, it ends up right there immediately. And everyone yeah. in the world, you can be in rural India or China or Africa or wherever, you can look it up, you can access that knowledge right away. And the speed also is important. Not only the retention, but the speed at which things can disseminate it makes all the difference. Wow. These principles are absolutely perpetual, and I cannot wait to hear what you have to say about it 
next year, David. This has been so much fun. We're kind of out of time for today. You and I could talk for hours, but I want to thank you for coming to APQC and being one of our big thinkers with big ideas. It's such a pleasure. Thank you.